Good morning. So glad to have everyone here. I am Justin, and I get to teach you today. Is anyone ready to learn with me? Cool, cool. Welcome to all of our online friends, too. I just got to talk, first of all, about what happened this past weekend. What is up with that snowstorm? I mean, seriously, that was pathetic. For a week, they had been talking about this monster snowstorm, and I want you to know my kids and I pray regularly for snow. And I get the distinct impression that some of you have more clout with God and are praying something different. <laughs> Anyhow, winter's not over. I'll keep praying. But so glad to have you here um, joining us today. We are in a series called World Religions. And the purpose of this series is really to help understand what the rest of the world believes. Because many of us have friends or family members or, or coworkers or fellow students who are of a different faith. And the first step to sharing our hope with them is understanding where they're coming from. And so the purpose each week as we look at one major world religion is to kind of not do a deep dive. I'm not a scholar of any other world religion um, or an expert, but just to do a 40,000-foot view of that religion and say, what are the basics of their belief? What's their story? How does it compare and contrast? with Jesus. And so I hope today is helpful. We've covered so far Islam, Buddhism, and Hinduism. And if you've missed any of those and want to go back, you can go online, you can listen or watch on the website. Uh, and I'm grateful we have a preaching team here at Berean that works collaboratively on, on preparing and writing the message. Ron put a ton of time into researching the, the, the religion today that I almost just gave away. That was close. So let me give you a little bit of, a, of an introduction, and you see if you can think of what religion this is. We're going to discuss a religion today that's more than just a system of belief, okay? More than a system of belief. It's actually a culture, it's an ethnicity, and it's a nation. This religious group, surprisingly, is 0.2% of the world's population. 0.2%, they, they only have about 15 million people in this religion, but they've had an enormous impact and influence on the world. Their worldview has impacted Western culture and continues to impact law, science, and business. This religion or people group spent nearly 2,000 years without their own homeland, some of you, the light bulb's coming on. And despite endless challenges and hostility, somehow they've maintained their identity and continue to make a positive impact on their world. Does anyone know who we're talking about? Yes, Judaism, Judaism. So when you hear Judaism or you think of the Jewish people, what comes to mind? Okay, there's a lot of different answers I'm hearing. There's a lot of things that might come to your mind. Maybe the Holocaust jumps to your mind. Maybe the Arab-Israeli conflict comes to mind. Maybe the little uh, nation in the Middle East that we call Israel comes to your mind. Maybe the Old Testament and the sacrificial system comes to mind. But today we're going to go a little bit deeper. What is Judaism and who are the Jewish people? Uh, while we talk about this, I want you to know that although globally the Jewish people are only 0.2% of the population, in America they make up 
2% of the population. And what's fascinating is out of 15 million Jews worldwide, fully one half of them live in America. So you may think of, okay, Israel being the seat of Judaism, half of the Jewish population lives in our country. What's even more fascinating is although it's 2% of the population around the country, locally, in the Binghamton Vestal area, it's 4%. And when Binghamton University is in session, it's 8% of the population is Jewish. So you probably have Jewish acquaintances that you rub shoulders with all the time, whether you know it or not. In fact, there are at BU 14,000 students, 4,000 of them are Jewish. That shock anybody? So right in our region, we have a ton of people of this faith, of this ethnicity, of this religion. So there's three main divisions of Judaism. Ironically, we have all three in our region, and I'll show you pictures of the synagogues of each branch. So this one is the temple, the synagogue, that's on Anyone know what street it's on in Binghamton? You've seen this Riverside Drive. This is the Orthodox Jewish synagogue. It is not open to you if you're not a Jew. I've tried. Uh, it's, not, it's not open to you. Um, this is limited to, to Jewish people only. The Orthodox view, when some of you think of Jews, you think of Orthodox Jews. Very traditional. They wear the Jewish uh, regalia and, and all that sort of thing. They, they keep the traditions that have been kept for over a thousand years. So when a lot of people think Judaism, they think of Orthodox Jews. But this is only one of three branches. Okay, in Vestal, they just built a brand new synagogue because the other one caved in. Um, this one is Temple Israel, and it's a, it's a Jewish synagogue that's conservative. So the conservative Jews believe in the Jewish traditions, but they're more integrated into society. They don't look the same, act the same, speak the same, or think the same as Orthodox Jews. There's a third branch, and this branch is, uh, they have a synagogue, Temple Concord on Riverside Drive in Binghamton. They are the Reformed branch, and they'd be considered the more liberal branch of Judaism. They're, they're much more assimilated into American culture and thought their view of the Hebrew scriptures is not a literal view. Uh, funny side note, 20 years ago, I went on my first day of my life with a young Bible college student to this synagogue. Her name was Annie, and she's now my wife. So good things happen at the synagogue. Uh, and I spent most of the Jewish service looking at the guy's yarmulke in front of me, and thinking how beautiful it was. Because I had a loner yarmulke that was white. It looked disposable. I think it was. It was pretty boring. So Annie graciously got me a beautiful, nice yarmulke. Uh, that's my own. So later this year, some of us are going to Israel. I'll wear this at sacred Jewish sites as a sign of respect. Men wear these at worship. They wear these at sacred sites. So those are the three different branches uh, that we have right in our own backyard. Now, I think a lot of us just assume that we already know a lot about Judaism. Because Judaism, I mean, we have, we have the Jewish scriptures in our Christian Bible, right? But here's the thing. You and I probably know far less about Judaism than we realize. 
Because the Judaism of the ancient Jews, the sacrificial system and the temple and all those things, is not the same, by and large, as the Judaism today, practiced by any three branches. There's been a lot of changes, and there's a lot of differences. So although we might have similar scriptures and a similar God, or the same God, actually, we have some huge, huge differences over time. In fact, in ancient times, Jewish people would go to temple and they'd sacrifice uh, an animal. They'd even give offerings from their crops. And that's not a thing anymore. As you know, there's no temple and Jews can't do that. So they've replaced that with prayer and study and worship at a synagogue. Um, So old Jewishness, they would go to, for Sabbath, they would be at their home and they'd be resting. And for a Jewish person, Sabbath is a huge deal. That's sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, the day that God rested after he created the world in six days. Now for Sabbath, Jews do not stay home. They go to synagogue. Most most men do and even a lot of women. They go to synagogue and they study and they pray on Sabbath. There's some things, though, in Judaism that have not changed. The holidays are still celebrated, and the tradition is very rich, and it's continued for thousands of years with the holidays and the feasts. For some Jews, like the Orthodox Jews, the way that they dress and speak and wear their hair has changed very little in over a 1,000 years. So just, just understand this. For many Jews, their heritage and their identity is something that's really important to them, really important to them. So before we go any further, I want to tell you their story of how their religion began. And for some of us, this is a new story, but it dovetails with something we do know in history. So way back in the day, you got to go back 4,000 years ago, there was a shop in a big city, and there there was an idol maker, who would carve and make idols for all different things. And 4,000 years ago, in that world, in that day, it was normal to worship idols. It was just common. You would be statues, there would be graven images, and, and you would get an idol for whatever you need. If you wanted a kid, you would, you would worship the idol of fertility. If you wanted good crops, you would worship the idol of harvest. If you wanted wealth, you would worship the idol of wealth. If you wanted your football team to win, you're out of luck. So... You'd have, you'd have an idol for everything. And there was, a, there was a shop owner who would make these idols and sell them. And he was away on business, so his son was manning the idol store. And this one day, a woman came into the shop, not to buy an idol, but with a bowl of fine grain to, to give fine flour to give to the idols as an offering. And something within that sun that day snapped. Because he just saw people giving up so much to these worthless idols. He knew that his dad had carved them only days before from wood. He knew they had no power. And he was frustrated. So she comes in and she gives this lifeless object, this fine flower that was, that was expensive for her. And then a gentleman comes in and he's going to buy an idol, specifically the idol of wealth. And and he looks at the boy and he says, aren't you too young to be selling idols? And the boy responds, I can sell you something more powerful. So he picks up a hammer and he walks over to an idol with large eyes 
And he said, can this idol see? And he smashed it. He said, I guess not. Must be blind. Then he walks over to an idol with big ears and said, can this idol hear? And he smashes it. He said, guess he couldn't hear. Then he walks over to an idol with big legs and he says, I wonder if he can run. So he yells, run! Smashes it. Guess he can't run. And so the guy is standing there absolutely horrified. And the boy says, I won't sell you one of those, but obviously this is more powerful than any of the idols. Want to buy this? And the guy ran away. Smart kid. Smart kid. So the boy proceeded in his anger that day to just go around his dad's shop and smash all of the idols except for one, the largest one. He then placed the bowl of fine flour in front of that largest idol. Well, his dad came home and and was livid when he saw all of his merchandise smashed. And the boy made up this elaborate story when the dad said, what happened? He said, well, a woman came in and offered her flour to this god and the other gods wanted it. And so they started fighting and then this god just kind of smashed all the other gods. And the dad looked at his son, didn't pick up the hammer, but dad looked at his son. He's like, son, you know, idols don't get hungry. They can't fight with each other. They can't smash each other. They're just lifeless objects. They can't do that. And the the story goes, the boy looked up at his dad and said, well, then why do you worship them? And as the story goes, that little boy's name was Abraham. And Abraham was the father of a new religious movement called monotheism. So up until that day, it's polytheism, pretty much globally. People worship poly, many, theas, gods, theism. Theos is God, many gods, the worship of many gods. And he introduces this new thing, according to the Jewish story, monotheism, one godism, the worship of one god. And from him, he had a son named Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, Jacob had 12 sons, and from them came not just a people group, but came the 12 tribes of Israel. So that's kind of the Jewish story of how in a world of polytheism, in a world of many gods, one young man woke up one day and realized there's one God, all the rest are fake. And because he came to that understanding, God then chose him and his wife to be the founders and the father of a new faith. So that's how the story goes for Judaism. The the nation would end up going into a land called Egypt, being enslaved for 400 years, and then God kind of showed up, the one God, the true God, showed up on behalf of his people, those who were monotheists, who worshiped the true God. He showed up to them, and he sent them Moses, who was a Jewish young man, who was adopted into the courts of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And if you know Moses, you know that Moses is a big deal to the Jewish people. So Abraham is a big deal as their founder. Moses is a big deal as the one who was close to God, who led them out of bondage. And Moses received, when he led them out of Egypt to the promised land, he met with God, and he received the Torah. Now, a number of years ago, we did a series on Torah. Torah is quite simply the first five books in your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 
Those are the books of Moses. Those are the first five books. Torah simply means instruction. So it was God's law given to God's people who were monotheists through Moses. And what the people did at Mount Sinai when they met with God and they saw the pillar of fire and this cloud come on the mountain as Moses is meeting with God and receiving the law, the people had this moment where the people said this, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. That was their commitment to God. You're, you're building a relationship with us. You're making us your people. We'll respond in faith by obeying everything that you've given us. So they believe that God gave Moses the first five books, the Torah, and he gave him a bunch of oral traditions that were then passed down. Now, they also believe that God offered those laws to other nations, but those other nations just continued to worship many gods, and it was the Jewish people that stuck to the one God. Even today, if you go to a Jewish synagogue, from the Torah, a scripture you're going to hear read is going to be this scripture. And it's fascinating. You can go to a Jewish synagogue and sit in and listen. You're going to hear our Old Testament read and explained. And this is what you'll hear at a Jewish synagogue on the Sabbath. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What did Abraham introduce to the world? Monotheism. One God, one true God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Now, some Christians have a view of the Old Testament God that he was an angry war God and the New Testament God was a God of love. And that's false. God has never changed. He's always been a God of both love and perfection and holiness. So even here, what do you see? Love. It's all about the heart. It's all about love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts, on your hearts. So God made this agreement with his people. I'll be your God, obey me, love me, write these things on your hearts. So God then gave his people a land, the land of Israel. He gave them a nation and eventually a kingdom. The nation of Israel is important to the Jewish people. In, in the history of their nation, they had many different types of kings as their kings went, so went their nation. Leadership matters, doesn't it? Leadership of a home, of a church, of a country, leadership matters. And so in Israel, whatever their king, whether he followed God or, or abandoned and neglected God, the whole nation would tend to follow him over time. And so they had some good kings and they had some really bad kings. Eventually, the entire nation fell into polytheism. They fell backwards into what Abraham's dad supposedly was in, polytheism. And they worshiped other gods. And what happened next is something that's this tragedy to the Jewish people is that they were kicked out of their land, their homeland. They were, in 722 BC, the Assyrians came in and took away some of the Jews from the homeland. And then in 586 BC, the Babylonians came in and took away the rest of the Jews and exiled them. So they lost their land. This was 600 years before Jesus. And it was a defining moment for the Jewish people. And they realized when they lost their homeland and they lost their temple that, that they had failed to worship God. They hadn't kept God's law. And because of that, God was punishing them. So here's what they did. They developed a system 
And that system is called Judaism. And Judaism was their system to keep them separate from polytheism. Separate from the other nations around them that worship many gods. Separate from false worship. And this system had two main rules. And it wasn't like Barney Fife saying there's two rules at the rock. Rule number one, obey all rules. There's two rules, and they're both extremely important in Judaism. Rule number one is worship one God. It's a big deal. That's why when they look at Christians, they view us as polytheists often because we think Jesus is God, and they, and they have a real problem with that. There's one God. So worship one God is a core tenet of Judaism, and the second one is follow God's law. And they believe if they worship one God and don't disobey God's law, that God will preserve them and give them their land and their temple back. So that's Judaism in a nutshell. Now, they were convinced that it would, it would allow them to regain everything that they had lost. And so by the first century, rabbis were teaching the Torah along with all these other rules. So they had taken the first five books of Moses, they had gone through and, and looked at every single command, and they found 613 commands. And they, and they split them up between positive commands and negative commands. And those commands covered everything, including the kosher dietary laws that Moses had gave them. So a Jewish person knows all about these 613 laws that we can find at the beginning of our Bible. These were the laws that they were to follow. Now, on top of those laws, the, the rabbis taught this Jewish system for how do we obey these things? We're supposed to honor the Sabbath. What does that look like? Can we light a fire on the Sabbath? Or is that work? Is that dishonoring the Sabbath? Well, the rabbis would debate that. And so this is a system that, that's heavily into debate and argument. They debate and argue with God. They think God wants that. They debate and argue with each other. They, they orally pass down these debates from generation to generation. Eventually, these were collected in written documents. And these written documents came to be known as the Talmud. So I have with me here a copy of their Mishnah. These here are the oral laws that were written down a few centuries after Jesus that contained the, the, the rabbi's teachings on how to follow the 613 laws of Moses. Okay? So if you want some reading, let me know. Now, this is only half of their Talmud. Now they have the, uh, they have the genera, which is a collection of commentaries about the Mishnah. So when you hear a Jewish person talk about Talmud and they study, they're, they're a big religion of research and study, they are studying a collection of writings and teachings that's twice as big as this, in addition to their scriptures, their holy scriptures. So into that world, into that world with all these Judaism laws, and all these rules on how to stay away from doing anything wrong and bad and how to avoid worshiping other gods, there came one day a Jewish rabbi who went a little bit rogue. And that Jewish rabbi came on the scene and he challenged 
their oral traditions. He did not challenge the laws of Moses. He didn't challenge those. He challenged everything that had been added to those and were held to as if they were scripture. And that rabbi got himself in deep trouble. He said, it's always been about the heart. He said that God loves mercy more than sacrifices. Now the prophet Malachi had said the same thing, but when this rabbi said it, he got in big trouble. This rabbi also taught that relationship is more important than law. And he taught what the Hebrew Bible had taught, but it didn't fit with the system of rules that they had added to things. And there was something else that he offered that really resonated with common people in his day. Here's what this Jewish rabbi offered. By the way, his name was Jesus. He said this, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. This is only half of all those traditions, right? And Jesus is like, hey, 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 hey. I'm not here to contradict Moses at all. I affirm Moses, but there's been a lot added. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you, say it with me, rest. You know how attractive that was in that day? This was not rest. These traditions and these rules were You couldn't keep them. There were too many. No matter what way you worked or looked or thought, you were somehow violating a rabbi teacher. And Jesus says, hey, come to me, and I will give you rest. Let me teach you. He's like, you got all kinds of teachers. Hey, listen to me, because I am humble and gentle at heart. He's like, look at my heart. Stop the focus on the law and the rules and the traditions and the customs and the practices. I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And Jesus disrupts the apple cart tremendously, so much so that the religious leaders of Jesus' day say, if we're going to preserve our identity, because there was this question, can we follow this new rabbi without losing our identity? And the consensus was, no, it's not possible. If we give up all of these oral rules about the laws of Moses, we're going to lose who we are. We're going to fall back into where we used to be into polytheism. We can't do that. So they say, Jesus has to be eliminated. We got to get rid of this new rabbi. He's gone rogue. They eliminate him, as you know. Now, he happened to not be eliminatable. Walked out of his grave three days later and changed the world. But here's what happened to the Jewish people after that. They stuck with their system. They got rid of Jesus as much as they could. They stuck with their system. But the problem is, in in about 66 AD, they decided to rebel against Rome, and it was a Roman world at the time. They were occupied. When they rebelled against Rome, the Romans didn't allow it and responded with a heavy hand. And so the temple was destroyed, destroyed. Their sacrificial system was lost. It was devastating but they still had Jerusalem, and they still had Israel. So rabbinic Judaism continued to compile all these traditions and write them down and try to maintain their identity, but something tragic happened again in 138 AD. So about 100 years after Jesus, 
they were kicked out completely from the land of Israel by the Romans. And they, as they were expelled, they lost their promised land. So here's what their rabbis did. Their rabbis, rather than saying, we've done something wrong, God's allowed us to be punished and be kicked out of our land, they instead doubled down. And they recorded all their oral traditions. And they spent the next couple thousands of years trying to follow and study and debate the minutia of all of these rules. So here's what would happen next. They would follow the rules. They believe by following the rules, they maintain their connection with God and their uniqueness as a group. Throughout history, the Jewish people, they've been pushed from one country to another. They've been split up. In fact, I don't know how any other people group could endure 2,000 years without a homeland, facing all kinds of persecution, mass exile, heartache, homelessness, even genocide, as you know, and somehow maintain their identity. That's nothing short of a miracle that they've maintained their identity for all these years. They've been hated. They've been misunderstood. But they have their identity, and you need to know this about a Jewish person. They will not give that up. Their identity is so crucial to them because it's not just a belief. It's their identity. It's their heritage. It's their, it's their culture. It's a past and a future. Now, here's something that may confuse you if you know a Jewish person. That Jewish friend or coworker probably hasn't tried to convert you to Judaism. And that's intentional. They don't want you to become a Jew. You don't need to become a Jew. In fact, all of these rules and laws and customs and traditions that they have, if you're not Jewish, if you don't have a Jewish mom, they don't apply to you. If you want to become part of the Jewish faith, you only have to follow seven rules of Noah, and you can look those up. So they're like, no, 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 no. don't convert. Don't become a Jew. That's un it's, it's unnecessary. You don't need to give up your identity and take our identity because then you got to follow this. You just stay Gentile. So their, their heritage is a big deal to them. Now, compare it or contrast it with Christianity. And here's the comparison. We start with the same God. Our holy scriptures start in the same place. They start in Genesis with the books of Moses. We believe in how many gods in Christianity? We believe in one God, the God of creation, the God of the Hebrew Bible. We believe in the Jewish God. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you believe in the Jewish God. You believe that you're created in God's image, and that belief, God's image, is the basis for religion. It's the basis for rational thought and language and creativity, and God's character is what gives us an understanding of right and wrong. And God's the one who brings order to our civilization and gives us science, technology, law, and justice. The God of the Hebrew Bible is the basis for Western civilization. Have you heard the phrase, the Judeo-Christian worldview? You've probably heard that. This is where it comes from. Our civilization is literally founded on this ancient belief in a single God the God of the Hebrew Scriptures. It's a fascinating concept. Now, while we have a very similar starting point, we have a big divergence. We have a place where we separate pretty powerfully with a Jewish person. 
and his name is Jesus, right? So one day, Jesus, and remember, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. Don't miss that. One day, Jesus, Jesus said something that really upset the apple cart. He did that a lot, but this day, he says this in John chapter 5. He says, you search the scriptures, and they're like, we sure do. Now, let me ask you, do you search the scriptures? What do we call our church? Brian? Bible church, what do we offer every week for people to take home a copy of the, the scriptures? So let me offer that again. If you want to study the scriptures, take this home. There's one in the chair in front of you. Take it as our gift. So we have a lot going here when Jesus says you search the scriptures, and we would agree with the Jewish people, yes, we do. And then he adds, because you think they give you eternal life. Now, this is a little confusing. Do the scriptures give you eternal life? I mean, again, this is where it sounds like he's going into heresy, but here's what Jesus says. But the scriptures point to me. He says, yet you refuse to come to me to receive life. So this is a challenge for Jews and for Christians is we can become people of the book so much that we miss who the book was pointing to. The book is pointing to Messiah, Jesus. And Jesus is like, guys, you're missing, you're missing it. Jesus brings life, not the Jewish traditions, not the Talmud, not the law. Jesus gives life. Can you imagine spending your life trying to keep the 613 laws? I can't even imagine trying to memorize 613 laws. But then there's all the other stacks of teachings and rules. Now, here's what it's done for a Jewish person. Obeying these and keeping these has given them really good moral character. But it can't change someone's heart. And it's an exhausting way to live. It is an exhausting weight to live under all of the rules of Moses and the rabbis for thousands of years. It's exhausting. So I want to tell you a true story about the ultimate Jewish leader. This Jewish leader was 100% Jewish. He was 100% committed to his faith, and he believed he was 100% right in his zealousness to obey and preserve the law of Moses, and the teachings of Judaism. And I want to read for you what he wrote. Actually, his words, shockingly, are recorded in our scriptures. And I want to, and I want to read this for you. He says this. He says, this is a Jewish leader. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. Check. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Check. A real Hebrew, if there ever was one. Check. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. Huge check. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Check, check, check. It's like I did it all. I practiced it all, and I even tried to stomp out, break away factions and cults that had sprung up to follow other bad teachers. And then he makes this statement. I once thought these things were valuable. 
Now, as a Jewish leader, as he's talking about his resume, Jewish people would have been like, you're the man. Like, you are exactly what we all aspire to. And then he says, and I used to think this stuff was important. I used to think this stuff was valuable. But then he says this. But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage. The word he uses there is dung, as in sewage. He's like, I count all my resume, all of my check, 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 check. I count it all as sewage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I became righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Anyone know who this was? This was Saul, the Jewish leader, who became Paul, the apostle. Philippians 3 is what I just read, and he wrote a whole bunch more. What changed for that Jewish leader? One day, he met Jesus. And Jesus changed everything, everything for Saul. In fact, Saul couldn't stop telling his story. The book of Acts in the Jewish scriptures and the, well, in the Christian scriptures, the book of Acts, the New Testament, do you know that Saul's story is repeated three times? Three times. You can't read Acts without hearing about this Jewish leader's transformation when he met Jesus three times. And Saul committed the rest of his life as he became Paul and a transformed person to spreading this good news of Jesus, that there's life not in the law, but there's life in a savior Messiah named Jesus. And he spread the good news throughout Asia and into Europe. Now, here's what I want you to not miss as we wrap up here. Our Jewish friends, what they often forget is that God has always been after the heart. He's always been after the heart. You read their scriptures in the first half of our Bible, the first 39 books, and it's all about the heart. God asking for our heart. God asking for our heart. It's always been about the heart. In the final book of the Hebrew scriptures, Malachi, God's telling them, look, you're following the rules and you're doing the sacrifices, but I'm not impressed because your heart is far from me. Those are in the Jewish scriptures. The writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews is writing to Jewish believers who are struggling with their faith in Jesus. And he tells them, Jesus is better than Moses, Jesus is your new high priest, and Jesus is your final sacrifice. And he tells them that all of those things you were doing were just shadows, temporary, that all pointed to a future better work of Jesus. See, all those years, they would come with animal sacrifices to temple, and they would cover their sin with the blood of these sacrifices. And the writer of Hebrews says, you don't understand, but you need to understand this. When you sacrificed, it was always a temporary thing. You were temporarily covering your sin. The reason you had to come back every year, multiple times a year, is because it wasn't permanent. It didn't stick. 
but Jesus came as a final sacrifice. And his blood doesn't cover your sin. It eliminates it. And the, the, the theme of the book of Hebrews is one word, rest. There is spiritual rest for people that hide their soul in Jesus. There is spiritual rest. Here's what the author of Hebrews writes in his own words. Christ said you didn't want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burn offerings or other sacrifices, offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them, though they're required by the law of Moses. And then he said, look, I've come to do your will, for God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Done. Jesus did it all. Jesus made all the difference. So, how can we introduce Jesus to our Jewish friends? First of all, understand that the Jewish legacy is filled with hardship and hatred. Many people hate them, and somehow against all odds, they've managed to maintain their identity. That's impressive. That's worthy of our respect. Be patient with them, because conversations about faith are not easy. Often entire generations have been taught, Jewish people have been taught that Christians are the enemies of Jews. And to be honest, Christian actions have often backed that up. And so you're going to need to show them that a true Jesus follower is different. Get to know them. Be curious about their beliefs and their customs and traditions. Don't be put off by them. Ask questions. Be curious to know about them. Building a relationship with them will take patience and time. One of the things they're most worried about is giving up their identity. They need to know that Jesus, what Jesus offered wasn't to throw out their identity, but to complete it. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 5. Don't misunderstand why I've come. I didn't come to abolish the law of Moses or the writing of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. The other thing you need to know is they're really worried about giving up their families. If a Jewish person believes as you do, and follows Jesus, they will likely lose their family. And that is a tremendous hurdle, an obstacle. I can't even imagine. Jesus said this in Matthew 10, I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. Your enemies will be right in your own household. So don't downplay that. For them to accept Jesus is going to come at a great cost. And it will probably cost them their family. And that's why beginning a conversation about faith with a Jewish person is a really big, big step. Show them that the New Testament is a Jewish book, it is a collection of Jewish books. See, because Jews are taught to fear the New Testament, but the New Testament, that Christian book, take them to the beginning in Matthew 1 and help them to see that it was written by Jews for Jews that Jesus was a first century Jewish rabbi. And he taught and he spoke from the Hebrew Bible. He didn't come to abolish Judaism, he came to fulfill it. Moses doesn't contradict Jesus, he offers a Messiah. And Jesus fits the description of all those Messiah prophecies. So let's show our Jewish friends that Jesus doesn't delete their identity, he completes it and that we can point them to their true Messiah. Would you bow with me for a moment?
Let me help us process this. There was a lot of information today, I, I know. And we didn't even scratch the surface, as you can tell. Let me ask you, first of all, do you have any Jewish friends or family members? Do you have some Jewish people in your life? You have, if you do, you have what they need. You have a relationship with Jesus. You have a connection with God that they long for. They would love to have that. They're trying to get it through adherence to rules and regulations and teachings of rabbis. But there was a rabbi 2,000 years ago who came and said, hey, hey, listen to me. Let me teach you. I will give you rest. And so maybe you and I can show them what spiritual connection and rest looks like. Because you and I don't live to earn the favor of God. We've received the favor of God when we receive Jesus. We're not striving for that. Now we're just striving to obey and honor the God who's already forgiven and accepted and welcomed us. It's a totally different way of thinking. The Jewish way of thinking is a list of do's. It's a, it's a checklist, a list of do's and a list of don'ts. And to follow Jesus is a path where it's finished. Jesus has done the work. He's accomplished all the demands of the law, all the requirements, 613. Jesus spent 33 years down here and obeyed every single one of those for his entire life. He lived the life we couldn't live to pay the price we couldn't pay to build the bridge to God we couldn't build. And now Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so my hope and my prayer is that we can show our Jewish friends, that we can show the thousands of Jewish young people and Jewish people of all ages in our region that there is a Messiah and he's already come and his name is Jesus. And I pray that that truth and life leaks out of our conversations, leaks out of our attitudes. But let me add one thing right here, because maybe for you, it's a little bit different today. It, it's not about you and Judaism. It's about you and being weighted under the demands and pressures of religion. I want to tell you, I'm so glad you came to church today, but coming to church can't make you a Christian any more than sitting in your, in your garage can make you a car. To be a Christian is to follow Jesus, period. And everything else is bonus, it's gravy. We, we read our Bible, we, we go to church, we pray, we serve, we give, we do that because we've been changed by Jesus. It's out of an overflow of gratitude. And so if you're here and you're working somehow to earn the favor of God, to, to get to heaven, I want you to know you can stop. Jesus offers rest. The rest you can't ever get from following rules. The rest you can't ever get from following a religion. Even baptism. I mean, you can get baptized until the polywogs know your social security number. It doesn't change you. Jesus changes you. And that Jewish rabbi who came 2,000 years ago who upset the religious systems says, come to me, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened and I will give you rest. I would be so remiss this morning if I didn't just give you a chance to come to Jesus.
He offers rest for your weary soul. He offers forgiveness. He offers peace. He offers you a chance to be connected to God, to be forgiven, and to someday spend eternity with him. This morning, if you want to come to Jesus, there's not a secret formula. There's not magic words. It's a matter of belief. The Bible says, you know, you believe with your heart and you confess with your mouth. And so today I invite you, if you believe, tell someone. Tell someone today, I, I am choosing to believe, to put my faith in Jesus. And let us help you. If we can help you grow in your faith, boy, we would love to do that for you. God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to disrupt the rules and traditions and customs of men and to give us a divine path to heaven. Thank you for being the way, the truth, and the life. You are so good. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.